following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. With the time that we have this morning, I want to begin by asking you a simple question. It is a question that doesn't offer a great deal of spiritual insight on the surface, and yet I trust that it's going to help you to more fully grasp the spiritual significance of what is to be found in our text that we're going to be considering this morning. And the question is simply this. If you could be a member of any television family, which one would you choose? Now, again, there are no time frame constraints to this question. If you want to go back to the days when... You know, these TV moms did their house cleaning, wearing dresses, necklaces, and high heel shoes. You go right ahead. You're more than welcome to do that. If you want to live in some animated family that functions in either the past, present, or future, that's okay, too. There are no restrictions. All I ask is that you just choose one family, one family that you could identify with and actually enjoy being a part of. Now, again, time's not going to permit me to go around and ask each of you Uh, what family you had chosen, um, but maybe we could just do a little random sampling. So what I've done is I've I've kind of done some research, and I've looked at a few different families, and I kind of got a list off of the the TV guide section of some of the top families uh, of times. Now, again, I tried to be somewhat objective um, in the choosing of my families, but I I do confess I I grew up watching a lot of these. Um, But don't get mad. If your family doesn't show up on here, if I don't get your family up on here, please don't come up to me afterwards and say, you know, Brock, uh, I can't believe that you dropped the ball and you didn't get this family up there. I, I, five families, that's all I could get up there, all right? So just humor me. Raise your hand if, if this is kind of the family that you, uh, you kind of picked to, uh, to gain yourself in, entrance into. Uh, Brady Bunch, we got some Brady Bunch people? All right, I see that hand. Thank you for your honesty. You got a couple right over there. Very nice. So we've got some Bradys. You know, the Bradys were pretty cool, and uh, that's a big happy family, a lot of good times there. Again, I, I wouldn't endorse any of these shows. I haven't seen them in a long time, but I, I did watch them growing up. Um, how about next? How many of you chose to be a Huxtable? Is Dion here by any chance? Because that was... All right, well, Dion, that was, that was you, brother. All right, the Huxtables. The Huxtables is a great family. Right? A great opportunity to kind of be, I mean, you got Bill Cosby as a dad. How can you go wrong there? I mean, just laughs galore, right? I mean, that would be a a good time. How many chose the Huxtables? All right. Very nice. Good job. All right. Next up, the Cleavers. All right. We got some Cleaverites in there. All right. Very nice. The Cleavers. Yeah, the Cleavers, good, clean family, right? Everything's everything's good there. Mom just always looked the part and and did a wonderful job. All right, next up we have the Ingalls. Oh, yeah, I see a really high-raised hand over there. Ingalls, all right, nice, thank you. All right, yeah, the Ingalls, you know, Paw and Half Pint and everybody along those lines, great, great family. And, and here's another, another family. <laughs> Flintstones, all right, Kind of Stone Agers, all right, there you go, good, good. All right, well, you know what? Now, really, in an effort to separate the wheat from the chaff, to really see the godly from the ungodly, I just need to know, how many of you chose to be a 
partridge. <laughs> Not the kind in a pear tree, but the partridge family. Now, if you notice the guy in the middle, he's been altered a little bit. This is my family right here. This, if I could, if I had to choose a television family, this would be the family. It would be the part. I mean, come on. You get to go around and you get to sing the title song. Come on, get happy. That would be reason enough just to be in the Partridge family. But then on top of that, not only do you get to sing that song, but you get to drive around. Look at that cool bus behind them. I mean, uh, come on, does it get any better than that? Just driving around in a, in a bus and singing, come on, get happy? That, was, that would be living for me. That would be living for me, and that would be the family that I would choose. But, you know, I'm sure that we could go up and we could take the majority of our time, and if I were to call each of you up here, you could give me a reasonable explanation as to why you chose the family that you chose. You could let me know how, you know, what a wise choice that was, because this family, above all the other families on TV, was the greatest. But that would really kind of miss the point of what it is we're trying to do here. Um, Because no matter how incredible we might think living in these families would be, no matter how glorious we think it would be to, you know, drive around in a bus singing, come on, get happy, um, these families aren't real. But you and I are, right? And as real people, we live in real families. And each of our families, if we're to be honest, are dysfunctional, some seemingly more so than others, but, but all have been impacted by sin. They are all broken, And to some degree, bear the evidence of this reality. So, I mean, is it any wonder that it's so easy for us to try to escape from the reality of of family life by kind of running to these TV families? And I I know I kind of forced your hand on that a little bit, but, you know, it's so easy to just kind of put ourselves in these TV families because, you know, in these TV families... Life doesn't get too complex, right? I mean, matters are are, are resolved in the matter of of minutes, Sin doesn't carry any any long-term, long-lasting consequences. Real pain, real suffering really aren't anywhere to be found in these families. And if they are, they kind of, you know, they're fixed by the next episode. But brothers and sisters, really, this is not reality. These families are, are not reality. So perhaps a better question to ask this morning is this. If you could be a member of any real family, which family would you choose? The Waltons. That would not be a real family either. But I guess they did exist at some point in time. Well, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning offers those of us that have ears to hear a realistic, church, a realistic choice. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark 3, 31 through 35. Again, Mark 3, 31 through 35, as we listen to the word of God. This is what it says. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a great God, and we thank you for all that you've done to make a way for sinners like us to be restored to a holy God like you. Lord, I pray right now that as we open up your word, I pray that you would just remove any distractions from us, that you would help us to set aside any, anything that would get in the way of us being able to hear clearly 
the message from this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you will work through this broken vessel, that I might speak clearly and articulate your truths to your church and to everybody that's here, Lord. I I pray that you will just bless our time together and you will give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you make available to those who come to you in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, well, if God were to stand in your presence right now and he were to invite you to become a member of his family, would there be any of you that would turn him down? Would any of you say, you know what, God, thanks for the invite into your family, but I'm going to stick with mine because my family is just all that. It's wonderful. It gives me everything that I need. It, uh, you know... It, they never let me down. They never sin against me. Anybody here in a, in a state love a family like that? I don't think so because, again, like I said, our families are broken. So if God were to stand in our presence right now and he were to give you the offer of being in his family, I don't think any of us would decline that. I don't think any of us would decline that if we rightly understood the offer and the one who is making it to us. You see, in our text, we find Jesus and the 12 that he had just chosen in a house that is so jam-packed, so full of people that they aren't even able to sit down to eat a meal. And it's in this context that Jesus offers to whoever does the will of God entrance into his family. And yet this is not an offer to a life of ease. On the contrary, it's a call to follow Jesus. And so this morning, you're going to get a, a small glimpse, a little glimpse into what being in God's family looks like. I assure you that this is by no means going to be an exhaustive look in that in that this isn't all that there is to being in God's family, but it is at the least these things. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning because God's family gives us great encouragement as we as we look on and as we move forward. But hopefully we'll be able to see that as we look at our text. So with the time that we have remaining, we are going to look at the three realities that are indicative of being in God's family. So let's begin with reality number one. Reality number one is this. Life in the family of God brings conflict. Life in the family of God brings conflict. And again, you would hardly expect to begin uh, a sermon on something like this with conflict because isn't just being in God's family, isn't it always just wonderful and isn't it always just easy and there's no issues or anything like that? Well, uh, at some point in time that will be the case, but right now that is not the case because life in the family of God brings conflict. And this conflict can come from those who are near and, and dear to us or from those who are far off and directly opposed to us. And we find at first in our narrative the opposition of those who are near and dear to our beloved Savior. So looking back a few verses in Mark 3 to verses 20 and 21, we read this. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, They went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Now, there's a somewhat ambiguous Greek construction that's used here in verse 21 that allows this phrase, his own people, uh, to really be interpreted and translated in a a variety of ways. So some Bible translations may read um, the the term as, as his friends. Others, though, might label it as his own people. 
and yet others would uh, would say his family. So how do we how do we know? Because you know, if we were to study this and we were to kind of look at it, uh, all of these things work in the Greek. I mean, it could be any one of these things. There's not one that's better than the other according to the 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 language and, and the way the language works. So who is it talking about? You know, is it? Uh, his friends? Is it his own people? I mean, like close by relatives, or is it his his family? And so, you know, I will take the uh, the the conclusion. We'll come to the conclusion that in this context, it is referring to Jesus's family, his immediate family. And the reason I take this view is that Mark has a rather unique writing style. It's a writing style by which he inserts one story kind of right in the middle of another. And this kind of, it's kind of creates a, a break in the narrative, uh, but it's not a meaningless break. It's, it's, a, it's a break with a purpose and, and it kind of inserts this additional story. And, and as a result, Mark is then able to use both of those stories to drive home one very important central point. And this is, is known as the Markin sandwiching technique. I think that's the very technical term for it, the Markin sandwiching technique, and, and it appears throughout Mark's gospel. And for those of you that are taking notes, you kind of want to kind of, uh, you know, just see, does this happen quite a bit? Well, yes, it does, and you can make reference to them real quick. We're not going to look at any of these other ones, but, you know, we see this sa- sandwiching technique by Mark used in, in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. We also see it in chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We see it in chapter 6, 7 through 31. We see it in chapter 11, 12 through 25. We also see it in chapter 14, in verses 1 through 11, and also in verses 53 through 72. So this is a a technique, a writing strategy that Mark uses really throughout his gospel. This is uh, very clearly how he likes to communicate and, and things he likes to do. And, and so in verse 21, if we kind of look, go through the, the, the narrative here that we're looking at, in verse 21, we have Jesus' family coming out to oppose him because they think he's crazy. Then in verses 22 through 30, we have the scribes opposing Jesus because they think that he's possessed by Beelzebul. And then in verse 31... You know, the sandwich is completed now. So, that you know, you got the, the one star that starts with his family coming out. Then you've got the scribes and tension there. And now we're going to bring it back to his family, the other side of the sandwich. And in 31, where we're brought back to the opening scene. And it brings into focus just who it was that set out to seize Jesus. So listen to verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. So it's here that we find Jesus in the the midst of conflict with those who are near and dear to him, in conflict with those who should have had the greatest understanding of who he was and what he had come to do, those who should have had an understanding of the passion and the zeal which pushed him to reach out to the multitudes, even to his own hurt, even to the, the ability to not be able to eat, but to keep on ministering and reaching out and teaching and proclaiming the gospel, the good news to the people that would come and listen. And yet our text tells us that Jesus' family was going out to to grab him, to seize hold of him, because they thought he was crazy. I mean, in their minds, only a madman would have the kind of zeal that, uh, that, that Jesus had. I mean, only a madman who had lost all complete control of his senses and his faculties would continue to minister to people and not take care of his own needs, even the basic needs of eating. And so they set out, and again, I'm sure 
that Jesus' family had good intentions in doing this. I'm sure they, they were looking out for him, but they set out to rescue Jesus from himself. Because in their minds, he wasn't fit to do this. You know, it's, it's this type of conflict from those who are near and dear that is especially hard to bear up under. I mean, you expect the outward attacks, right? You expect those things to happen. You expect people that are in direct opposition to you to fight against you. But to be opposed by those who are closest, that's, that's hard. How do you prepare for that? And yet all throughout history, we find instances of conflict from people that are deemed to be close, right? We conflict with those that are, are thought to be for us when they're really against us. There was Marcus Brutus and Caesar, right? I mean, Brutus was a, a beloved friend to Caesar, he was also, however, a Roman senator who, who opposed the ascension of any one man to the position of, of a dictator, even if that one man was his dearest friend. See, Brutus feared that his friend Caesar had such aspirations that he wanted this kind of dictatorship, and so he became part of the plot to oust Caesar from power. And it was this betrayal to oust Caesar that caused him to utter one of the most well-known cries of dismay, Et tu, Brute. And you, Brutus? Benedict Arnold is another man who's gone down in history as a traitor. Once a living legend, a brilliant general who had fought bravely against the British troops in, in several tough battles. But by the end of the war, this once esteemed general was commanding British troops against his former for- forces. It, and it appears that he'd become a little disgruntled over his perceived lack of recognition as a military genius. And so Benedict Arnold turned his allegiance as a man who had once fought so bravely and and so vehemently for for America, had turned his allegiances to fight against America. And without questions, attacks from those whom we consider to be for us are the most heart-rendering of all attacks. And Isaiah 53.3, we're told that the Messiah was to be a man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief. There's no doubt that this sorrow and, and, and grief would be deepened by the betrayal of those who are closest to him. And we see this betrayal in our immediate text at the very onset of Jesus' ministry, but we also see it uh, at the end of his ministry when he's handed over to the religious leaders by Judas Iscariot, the same Judas Iscariot who is right there taking this scene in right now because just prior to this, the 12 disciples were chosen. The 12 disciples had been handpicked by Jesus. So this Judas Iscariot is watching everything that's transpiring here and he's seeing Jesus's family come out against him to take hold of him and he sees how Jesus deals with him and yet he still goes forward and betrays Jesus in a similar manner. But conflict from those closest to Jesus was not the only conflict that he would face. He would also be opposed by a group known as the scribes. And this would be a special group that would be sent out from Jerusalem to neutralize Jesus' influence. And in in a sense, Jesus was starting to gain some traction in his ministry. And he had just kind of of appointed the 12. He was already doing some things. People were already gathering. The crowds were already hearing from him. So he's launching into this ministry. And so the scribes send a group out to basically discredit Jesus to lessen the influence that he has. And this would be a group that would be blasted time and time again for their hypocrisy and their selfish ambition. But in Mark 3.22, we're told of their malicious opposition to him. Listen to what it says. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, 
And he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. You know, it's interesting to note that nowhere in here, in here do the scribes question Jesus's power. Nowhere in here do they look at him and say, you know what, that's not real. You know, they, they, they realize what he's doing. I mean, no, nobody could argue the fact that miracles were happening. Lives were being transformed. Demons were being cast out. So if they were to come in and they were to say, you know what, this isn't really happening, they would look pretty foolish. So they acknowledge openly. They recognize clearly that Jesus is doing miraculous things. But for them, the only reason that he can do this is because he's in alliance with Satan. He's in cahoots with Satan. They've teamed up. So to the scribes, Jesus was nothing more than than a tool of Satan. Everything that he did, in their view, was demonic and evil. And you know what? really shouldn't be surprised when the religious leaders pull this sort of stuff because they kind of did that with with the forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was somebody who who they said he has a demon. And we see this in Matthew 11, 18 and, and Luke 7, 33. They accused John the Baptist of having a demon. And so it's not surprising that we see them doing the same thing with Jesus, And to show how utterly ridiculous these accusations are, Jesus decides to have a little chat with these scribes. He decides to kind of call them over to himself and and talk with them a little bit. So picking things up in verses 23 and 26, we read this. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. You see, Jesus speaks with the scribes using logic 101. I mean, simple logic in an effort to disprove their accusations. The principle is one that any rationally thinking individual could could really be able to understand. Any entity that is at war within itself will not last. It is simply not able to because it is tearing itself apart. If you have uh, from the inside, if you have two forces that are fighting and there is an outside opposing force coming upon them, it's going to crumble. It's going to falter. And so this is what Jesus is trying to get across them. Look, if if Satan is fighting against himself here, then he's going to destroy himself. This is just, this is simplicity. I mean, we see it in our own lives, don't we? I mean, if mom and dad are on the same page on something, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to, to, to have a house that runs well when that doesn't happen, when, when they're opposed to each other. I mean, we get that. We need to be united if we're going to get anywhere. I mean, you didn't see America launch off in the midst of the Civil War when there was a lot of infighting. You didn't see them launch off and, and engage in any other battles, because they would have been overtaken. They would have been destroyed. And, and so they had to work through that. But he's saying, well, look, anything that happens where there's enti- when there's entities that are battling within an entity, then it's going to destroy itself and it eventually will be broken and ruined. And the explanation that the scribes offered for Jesus' power simply didn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for Satan to go around doing these good things or to be casting out other demons. If it is, he's destroying himself. And then he goes on and he tells them what was really going on in verse 27. He writes this, or he says this. He says, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. And then 
he will plunder his house. Now, picture with me the scenario. You're sitting at home one night and all of a sudden you hear a knock at the door. You go to you go to answer your door and standing at your door is a robber. But instead of pulling a gun or a knife on you, this robber this robber simply says to you, "Hello. My name is Let's see, Jason Drum's the newest guy on staff. So my name's Jason Drum, and I'm the associate pastor of, uh, of, of Student Ministries here, and I am here to rob you. Um, what are you going to do? I mean, Jason's a nice enough guy, and, and he's and we're very thankful to have him on staff, but because he's on the pastoral staff and he's saying that I'm here to rob you, are you going to just kind of let him into your house? Are, are you going to... Um, just kind of let him rob you? Are you going to invite him in and say, hey, Jason, let me show you what the really expensive stuff is so that you can make your time here worthwhile? In fact, Jason, why don't I help you carry out some of the heavier stuff? Because you know what? It's really heavy, and I know you've got to preach on Sunday, so let me just uh, you know, help you carry out some of the heavier stuff. Is that what you're going to do? I would hope not. No, you're, you're at home. You're in your home. And and you're going to do everything within your power, even if that means calling the police to stop Jason from taking your stuff. And you're going to use everything within your sphere of power to stop him from robbing you. And this is Jesus' point to the scribes. For in the parable, Satan is the strong man. And his house is this domain that he currently, currently rules on earth. And his property is the countless victims that are held captive through his deceit and treachery. Thus, Jesus points out to the scribes that that he, Jesus, is the one who has bound the strong man so that he he might plunder his house and claim his property. And you know what, brothers and sisters, each and every one of us in here that has been saved, each and every one of us that has been plucked out of that kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light can give a hearty amen. Praise God for the fact that he has done that. We are all testimony to the fact that God has done this, and yet we don't see it in its fullness. Satan has been overpowered, and yet the full manifestation of his house being plundered will not be recognized until our glorious Lord's return, to which we should all say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Jesus then goes on to give a solemn warning to his accusers in verses 28 and 30 through 30. He says this, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You know, there's, there's a lot that's been written in regards to what Jesus means when he talks about a, uh, the sin that can never be forgiven, never has forgiveness, otherwise known as the, the unpardonable sin. But before another word is said about this unpardonable sin, let me just state that if you are the slightest bit concerned even the slightest, that you may have committed this sin. Can I tell you that you haven't? With, with all that seems to be associated with this sin, a sensitive, pliable conscience would be sufficient evidence to show that a person has not committed this sin. So what is it then? 
Well, according to Wayne Grudem, it is an unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work, attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. Let me read that again. It is an unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work, attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. So as we come back to our text, remember what the scribes had seen. Remember what the scribes had, had heard. And not only did they reject that this was something from God, but they actually sought to give credit to Satan. Out of hatred, out of spite, out of rebellion to Jesus Christ, they were willing to label the Spirit's work as being satanic. In a sense, these scribes were calling something that was clearly good evil and something that was clearly evil good. And this wasn't simply a one-time occurrence. This wasn't just a little slip of the tongue. Oops, I said something. I shouldn't have said that. No, this was, this was their persistent pattern of thought in regards to Jesus. You see, their hearts had become so hardened that they were incapable of thinking any differently about the Spirit's power as it was being displayed in the ministry of Jesus. So every time they saw Jesus performing a miracle, every time they heard Jesus speaking truth from God, they would just in their minds go to, that is from Satan. And the truth that is being spoken by Jesus there is satanic. Okay, this wasn't just a a one-time thing. This was their regular pattern so that they could not help themselves but to come to that conclusion so that every time they heard these things, they attributed it to Satan. So again, if if you're even the least bit concerned that this verse is talking about you, allow that concern to act as evidence that Jesus' words are not referring to you. Again, unless your heart is so hardened that every time you hear Jesus' words speak, you think that that's Satan speaking. That's not, that's, this, is, this verse isn't talking to you. So having said that, I think it's important though that we come to grips with the fact that in that life in the family of God, it's going to consist of conflict. There is going to be conflict. If it happened to our Lord, then, then we can rest assured that it's going to happen to those who are seeking to follow him. In John 15, 19 through 20b, Jesus tells the disciples of the, the impending relationship that they have with the world. He says this, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the apostle Paul tells his young protege, Timothy, that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ encountered conflict in this life. This, This conflict came from those who were close as well as from those who were in direct opposition. And as his followers, you need to be ready to deal with both types of conflict. And let me just do a little side note here. When you get conflict, can we please just make sure that that conflict is coming because of the message that we're bringing and not the manner in which we're presenting it? You know, 
the gospel is offensive to people. It's foolishness to people. And if we get in conflict with people because they think we're foolish for believing these things, then then so be it. But if we get in conflict with people because we present the gospel in such a way that is unloving, uncaring, uncompassionate, then shame on us. The message, the gospel, is to be the stumbling block and the rock of offense, not you and me. Let's not be jerks as we share the gospel with people. Let's not be so... um, opposed to everything that is is in our world that, that we fail to be able to engage people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's not be so self-righteous that we can't talk with our neighbors and people who do not know Jesus Christ without coming across as arrogant and better than thou. God calls us to be a people who are in conflict And sometimes that conflict's going to be with those close to us, and sometimes that's going to be with people who are far off from us. But again, he doesn't call us to be in conflict because we don't treat people with love and respect. So having established this first reality, we're now ready to move on to reality number two. And reality number two is this. Life in the family of God brings comfort. Life in the family of God brings comfort. And in an effort to bring us back to where this narrative first started, namely Jesus' family coming out to him because they think he's lost his senses to save him from himself, we find them finally getting there. Okay, so they set out to go get him. We see the opposition um, from the scribes, and now we see Jesus' family finally getting there. And so follow along as we read from verses 31 through 34. And this is what the word of God says. Then his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brother are outside. Your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. Now, these words that were spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ must have, I can only imagine, created quite a stir amongst the crowd. I'm sure you could have heard a a collective gasp as, uh, as as Jesus spoke these words. And really, the, the reason for that would have been within the Hebrew culture, one's family was considered to be very sacred. Now, Jesus is in no way severing his family ties. He's not turning his back on his family. He's not casting them into the outer darkness. He's not putting them where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's not doing anything along those lines. What Jesus is doing when he makes this comment, when he, makes, when he speaks these words, is he's offering hope to all of those, all of us, who are not fortunate enough to have been born into his family line. He's letting the people know that there are no bloodline distinctions when it comes to being a member of God's family. So without any spite, without any ill will, Jesus is letting his natural family know that their bloodline carries no authority in regards to them being in the family of God. They have no special privileges 
They have no special ranking over those who were not born into his natural family. There is a spiritual kinship that exists within the family of God that renders all bloodlines irrelevant. The text serves notice to all who think that they have some kind of a special claim on Jesus. It offers hope to anyone who might feel unworthy. It's meant to shake up those of us who maybe are comfortable and to encourage those who are dejected. What Jesus is saying is that there is a new family and it is a superior family to any human family because it's an eternal family. It's a family that that has ties that are far stronger. It is a family that has demands that are far greater And it is a family that has a love that is far superior to any human family out there. So, picture yourself there with me. Picture yourself in the scene. Jesus' biological family is standing outside and the crowds are pressed in so much that they can't even see him. They can't even yell to him. Too many people, too much of a separation. They are on the outside looking in. And so they send word by way of other people. Hey, can you let Jesus know that his family's here? They've come to get him because, again, they think the crowds um, and everything is too much for him. So they send word. And Jesus is told, finally, the word works its way up to Jesus. And he's told that your, you know, your, your mother and your brothers are out there. And Jesus, again, hearing this, He says, who are, who are my my mother and my brothers? And again, picture yourself there. The crowd hears this. Family's huge in the culture. (gasps) What did he just say? And then Jesus, I'm sure just totally capitalized on this, being the the ultimate teacher. I'm sure he just, he just surveyed the crowd. He asked the question, who who are my mother and my brothers? And he surveys the crowd and he, and he, and he looks at everybody. And a silence. And then he utters this. He says, Behold, my mother and my brothers. I mean, I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop as the crowd took all of that in. These are words that should radically impact each and every one of our lives. They are words of hope and they are words of promise. I love J.C. Ryle and in his commentary on Mark, he says this. He says, let all true Christians drink comfort out of these words. Let them know that there is one at least who knows them, loves them, cares for them, and reckons them as his own family. What though they be poor in this world, they have no cause to be ashamed when they remember that they are the brethren and sisters of the Son of God. What though they be persecuted and ill-treated in their own homes because of their religion, they may remember the words of David and apply them to their case. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. You see, the ramifications of becoming a member of God's family are enormous. I mean, listen to what 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 has to say about this. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you 
once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amazing. And this great truth, it's, it's not just there. It's found all over the Bible. I mean, Ed commented on it earlier in, in Romans eight fifteen through 17. Just listen to these words. Take them in, please. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers and sisters, just take a moment. Take a moment to to ponder the depths of this truth. Take a moment to let it sink in. Because in Christ, according to his word, you have become a child of God with all of the rights and all of the privileges that go along with that. In Christ, you have become a fellow heir to the throne of God. Stop and think about that. Everything that God rules and reigns over you are a fellow heir to. Everything that he has created you are a fellow heir to. I mean, if that doesn't give you hope, if that doesn't give you any kind of comfort no matter what you're going through right now, I don't know what will. I really don't. I'm convinced that this great truth has lost some of its luster. I'm convinced that far too many of you have failed to really drink this truth in to really internalize it. Sure, you'll pay, you'll pay mental assent to it. You get it intellectually. And yet I don't think it's really impacted your life. I don't think you really understand the magnitude of, of what is going on here when you are brought into God's family. I mean, to, to, to maybe check your heart a little bit, what, what, if, what if you were to be an heir to Bill Gates and Bill Gates were to die and everything that Bill Gates had was yours? Do you think anybody would be sitting there? Oh, yay. It's cool. No. You know, some of you would be up on stage going, Woo! Yes! I've got it. All my problems are solved now. I've got money, church building paid off. What else do you need? Right? I mean, you would be excited. You would be ecstatic if you had all of those resources credited to you. And yet, if that is all you have is Bill Gates' fortune to carry you into eternity, I assure you, brothers and sisters, you will be sorely lacking. Because as much as that stuff may benefit you in this life, 
it does nothing for you going into the life after this, where we will be spending an eternity. 70, 80, 90 years maybe. Unless you're Madeline, then you can get up close to 100, right? Um, you know, it means nothing. And yet we get so excited about those types of things. But God's made you a joint heir in Christ. Everything that he's created, everything that is his, he offers to you. What will we lack? When we're in glory, what are we going to lack? Think about that. This is what God gives those who are in his family. There is indeed comfort for those who are in God's family. This is comforting to know. Because again, in this life, things are hard. Things don't always work out the way we'd like them to. But we have the comfort of knowing that in Christ, we have everything. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing from above. So let us rejoice in that and find comfort in that, even through our difficult times. So having uncovered that those who are in God's family will deal with conflict and those in God's family will be blessed with comfort, we are now ready to look at our third and final reality. And reality number three is this. Life in the family of God brings conformity. Life in the family of God brings conformity. Follow along as we read from verse 35. This is what it says. It says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This third and and final reality is the decisive point in the text. In order to be a member of God's family, it is going to take more than a mere profession of faith. It's going to be more than just uh, saying, I believe. There is going to be a doing of God's will. And this is essential for all believers. Being a member of God's family is not a matter of genetics, but rather it's a matter of being obedient to the will of God. The whoever found in verse 30, 35 shows that this relationship is open to each and every one of us, to everyone alike. Obedience, though, is the one trait that is to run through every member of God's family because it is the trait that was perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. And yet I am not saying, you know, I'm not standing up here saying that when you become a Christian, you are going to walk in sinless perfection. No, that is not the case. But you and I will be coming more and more conformed into the image of Christ. We'll be becoming more and more Christ-like. And if we're not, then we have to check whose family we're really in. Because if we have God's Holy Spirit in us, if we have the Holy Spirit, the power of God working in us to change us, we will change. And if we are in God's family, we will become more conformed into Christ's image. And if that's not happening, we need to question again whose family we're in. Every time I read Matthew seven twenty-one through 23, it's just, it's sobering. I mean, just listen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in, who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I mean, these verses should send a chill down your spine as as you read them. They should act as a warning so that that none of you might fall into the trappings of the secularized Christian culture, the the one that would have us to to believe that we are saved because of, uh, of some membership class that we went through or our baptism or our Christian upbringing or a confirmation that we did or the fact that we are a church attender or the fact that we give... Regularly, we're charitable givers. We should not fall into the trappings that those things are what get us into God's family. These things are not bad. They just don't make you a member of God's family. Only those who seek to do the will of God are considered to be the members of his family. And here's the thing. God has created us. He saved us to walk in good deeds. And when we walk in good deeds, when we do these things, people will see these good deeds and they will praise our Father in heaven. These good deeds, brothers and sisters, don't save us, but they bear evidence to the fact that we have been saved. They bear evidence to the fact that we are in God's family, that we are His children. So again, if we're not growing if we're not seeking to uh, live for God and to bring glory to God in all that we do, if we don't want to do the will of God, then let's not kid ourselves and pretend that we're, we're something that we're not. If you're saved, if you're in God's family, you, you will be conformed into the image of Christ. And again, this isn't always a neat, tidy you know, straight up and graph by year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six. No, it doesn't go like that. It's, you know, sometimes it's all over the place, right? But there should be growth as we look back at the movie. Not at every snapshot, but as we look back at the movie of our lives, we should see change. We should see God working in us to make us more Christ-like. This is what it is to be in God's family. You know, obedience is also the key to experiencing family with, with our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, right? I mean, when you make God's will your will, you experience a dynamic relationship with others that are, that are living into submission to him as well. I mean, there may be times when you're meeting somebody for the first time, never met them before, but you come in contact with them and you start talking and you realize they love the Lord and they want to honor God and they want to obey God and you just are connected to them. And, and, and you have, a, you have a, an affection for this, this person that you just met. And maybe even a stronger affection than, than some brother or sister that you have that doesn't know the Lord. Why is that? Because again, in God's family, when somebody is seeking to do his will, it creates a sense of family within us. And we want to be around these people. We want to spend time with these people. We want to be encouraged and we want to encourage these people. All true believers make up the household of God, and this is evidenced by the fact that Jesus uses terms like mother, brother, and sister. Jesus did not add the phrase, though, the father, because in this family there's but one father, and it's a position that no human could possibly fill. Jesus always used and reserved the term father for his heavenly father. So, again, we shouldn't be surprised that father's lacking there because, again, ultimately there is one father in heaven. 
So having said that, this morning we focused in on three realities. Three realities that are indicative of life in God's family. And the first reality was really meant to prepare us for the conflicts that we're going to face in this family. The second reality was meant to give us comfort as we rejoice in all that is ours in this family. And the third reality was meant to remind us that we will be conformed into Christ's image as a result of being in this family. Without question, these things are real. They are true of every member of God's family. But they will mean nothing to you unless you have been born again. On the night of Nicodemus, on the night that Nicodemus stole away in order to speak with Jesus, he was told by Jesus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in order to become a member of God's family, you must put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Acts 4, 12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. See, apart from Christ, you will never experience the joy and the comfort that come from being a member of his family. And God, being a God who is rich in grace and mercy, he's patiently waiting for you to come to repentance. He's calling you to turn away from your sin and to turn towards him. He's calling you to trust in him, in his perfect life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And the moment, brothers and sisters... Church family, the moment we do this, the moment we place our faith in Christ is the moment that you become a member of the greatest family that ever was. And while becoming a member of God's family doesn't promise you freedom from the struggles and the difficulties of this life, it does offer you great hope and promise for the life to come. Regardless of your family background that you've come out of, and we all have different, vastly different family backgrounds, Jesus is offering you the opportunity to be a part of the perfect family. But understand that admittance to this family is not always easy. It will require a a love for Christ that is above all other loves, a love that will move you to lay down your life so that you might truly find it. You know, we started this morning with a question that sought to know which television family you would choose to be a part of. And while that question may be fun, it strictly hypothetical because try as you might you will never really be a member of that family but again i asked the other question if you could be a member of any real family which one would you choose it would be my hope and prayer that each and every one of you would choose to be a member of god's family that you would seek to join yourself with the living god not merely through some lip service but through a heart that has been rendered to do his will so that he might be glorified in and through you. Let's close in a word of prayer and then Tim will have you come on up and close us in a song. But let's let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth that it contains and we thank you for your gracious act in drawing us into your family. Lord, we confess we are undeserving. And yet we are so thankful for all that you have given us. Lord, may you help those that are here, that are in your family, Lord. May you help them to be comforted. And may you conform them more and more into Christ's image. Lord, for those that are not in your family, I pray that you would help them to see just how important and how beneficial and how joyous it is 
to be in this family. And Lord, I pray that you would bring them out from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, that they might walk in a manner worthy of their calling, Lord, and that they might do all that they do to bring you glory and to point others to you. Thank you for our time together this morning, Father. We pray that you are honored in it. And we ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.